This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech. The future of hydrogen is here, and Biotech is leading the way by disrupting the established centralized hydrogen supply chain with a new highly efficient model of local production hubs. Biotech produces hydrogen close to demand and transports it via high-pressure, high-capacity storage trailers. Fewer truck trips translates to lower transportation costs, lower emissions, and safer roads. It's the first step in making hydrogen more affordable and accessible today. Visit Biotech.us to learn how Biotech makes hydrogen easy. From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me from a few blocks down the road here in Washington is Patrick Malloy, Manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who is calling in from London. On this episode of EAH, we are delighted to have back with us Graham Cooley, CEO of ITM Power. Graham was an early guest on the EAH podcast, and in the past two years, ITM's operations and profile as a leading manufacturer of PEM electrolyzers have grown tremendously. As a public company with the significant backing of energy industry leaders such as SNAM, ITM is a company to watch in the electrolysis space. We are very excited to have Graham back with us on the show. But before we get into it, we'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at, at about hydrogen. All right, let's get this episode started. All right, guys. Well, let's uh, let's circle up. How's everyone doing? Patrick, start with you since I can see that your microphone is not muted. How's life? How are things? Oh. Uh, that's my mistake, eh? Uh, <laughs> yeah, as you can see, you know, I'm, I'm disheveled and all over the place. No, I'm, I'm going well. Looking forward to an exciting year. And uh, yeah, we've had some, some cool stuff uh, kind of uh, uh, like around shipping corridors and things in the last little while. But I feel like we're not even... We're not even at the point where it's worth kind of really diving into that one just yet. What about you, Andrew? How <laughs> too, you? too early for the Port of LA discussion? May, maybe, maybe just early enough. Fair enough, fair enough. Chris, yourself, how are things in the UK? Going to any, uh, any garden parties at 10 Downing Street these days? Um, well, I mean, you know, always, Andrew, always. <laughs> um, no, look, uh, it, it's, it's a bit interesting at the moment because you've got loads of crazy stuff going on in the uk um i mean covid stuff is quite fun because i think they're going to remove uh quarantining in the next month two months i mean basically all the restrictions are are kind of gone so it's pretty open now um which is very odd so things feel very normal which is very strange so that's kind of the covid side then you've got a massive energy price political issue i mean energy is is really high on the political agenda at the moment in the uk you've got all sorts of calls for windfall taxes on bp and shell you've got this big cost of living crisis because wholesale prices are up it's all you know then feeding into the russia stuff which is also a massive topic at the moment the brits have just sent more troops more tanks the you know there's some quite bellicose statements coming from british foreign secretary defense secretary prime minister about russia and ukraine and about the need to defend nato states so you know, there's kind of quite a bit of weird and wonderful stuff going on. And so, yes, there is also then this question of what happened for various drinks parties. And uh, to an extent, you know, you're kind of wondering, going, is that really the most important thing to be dealing with? I I don't know. I I think there are issues. And the one that got everyone upset, and I'll stop, is the Queen. There There was a really pretty horrific one where apparently there was a party at 10 Downing Street where everyone was mingling at the same time as Prince Philip's funeral, and effectively the Queen was sitting on her own, and there's so, so the optics of that are pretty, pretty toxic, um, rightly so. Oh dear. Well, when you ask Chris Jackson how he's doing, you get a geopolitical dissertation, which is great. It's so much more interesting than what I'm doing. Can you see my room? It's literally <laughs> piles of like papers, unpacked clothes half-eaten things you know it looks, I, I don't do it anything looks apart like work, Andrew. so what else are you gonna get i was gonna say it looks like uh the quarters of a entrepreneur uh, at a startup company so it all fits chris it all fits uh, you know if i told you on the podcast that i spend all my time playing tennis and you know enjoying the weather i'm pretty sure my investors would complain so <laughs> right so it's all for show then got it <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm glad to, glad <laughs> to hear you're doing well, Chris. That's fantastic. 
on that note, guys, I think what we should do here is maybe jump right into uh, introducing our guest and uh, and what ITM does a little bit. We'll leave we'll leave the details to him. But um, Patrick, do you want to go for the intro here? Oh, I, th- I think I think we can do a dual effort, given that Graham Graham has been with us before, and and folks who have been tracking this space for the last little while will be pretty familiar with ITM. But yeah. Uh, a leader in the the PEM electrolyzer manufacturing space, prominent in in the announcements of the the first Gigafactory there in Sheffield, and and obviously uh, a big announcement about a I think it was a twenty four megawatt electrolyzer with the Linde Group uh, coming out reasonably recently. So it's going to be interesting to see what plans Graham has next and uh, what we can kind of hear from the state of the market and the growth of the market from uh, from someone on the OEM side. Chris, any 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 additional thoughts, and maybe the the British context as well. Uh, look, I mean, j- just to say that um, I think uh, a lot of people got quite excited. Interestingly, when ITM did its last release, and uh, because there was a really there was a photo of inside one of the the ITM Gigafactory, and it was just the entire floor was filled with units being assembled. So I think uh, why it's really exciting having Graham on the show is because. ITM have been at the forefront of um, the hydrogen industry for a while. They've got some huge partners, some big projects. And so it's really exciting to have a chance to get Graham on, you know, since we had him on the show in the very beginning. And I think it'd be fair to say it's kind of a little bit night and day comparing where we are now to where they were back then. I think, you know, even if you looked at the share price, I think their share price was, you know, maybe a couple of hundred million, maybe three, four hundred million at the time. And they're now two point something billion. So, you know, it, even that is quite staggering. So I think it'll be really exciting to catch up. And obviously, Graham's a great speaker and he does a lot of this stuff. So I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it. Well, let's, uh, I can see he's on the line, guys. So let's uh, turn it over to Graham. So, Graham, welcome back to the show. And uh, as uh, I'm sure ITM Power needs no introduction for the vast majority of our viewers, but those newcomers to the hydrogen space and to the podcast, I'm sure would love a little bit of background on you and uh, what ITM does. So if you could tell us a bit about both of those things, that would be fantastic. Okay. So uh, Andrew, thanks uh, very much for having me back on the show. Uh, thanks to everyone to c- for coming along and listening. So um, ITM Power, uh, we're an electrolyzer manufacturer and um, at the beginning of 2021, so a year ago, Unbelievably, 2021, beginning of 21 was a year ago. We moved into the world's largest electrolyzer factory with a capacity of one gigawatt per annum. Uh, that's 1,000 megawatts per annum. And it's in Sheffield in the UK. We manufacture PEM electrolysis equipment. And, and really, our focus is on scaling the manufacture and reducing the cost of PEM electrolyzer equipment. And um, not only are we scaling the manufacturing, but our EPC partner, Linda Engineering, are scaling the deployment. So it's all about scaling and cost reduction. And um, over the last uh, few years now, uh, we have um, been increasing uh, the amount of orders in our backlog. And I'm delighted to say that uh, we just recently announced a 24 megawatt electrolyzer with Yara, and that takes our backlog uh, to just under half a gigawatt, 499 megawatts. Uh, we've got uh, uh, around 100 megawatts of equipment running through the factory right now, and the rest is in the very final stages of negotiation. We have 390 million on our balance sheet. And I can tell you that uh, since the last time I was on the show, uh, we raised a total of half a billion. So uh, it's been an amazing few years for ITM Power and for green hydrogen. No, I mean, it absolutely has, Grim. And uh, in some senses, as you, you usually do, you preempt a lot of questions that are going to come through the list. Um, one that I know a few eagle-eyed uh, observers had made on LinkedIn was um, actually how many units are being assembled on the floor. And actually, I think you answered that quite well. So thank you for, for sharing that. Um, I guess maybe as a reflection, because this is a great opportunity to have you back and sort of ask you now compared to when we first spoke to you, you know, how things have moved on. Are you surprised 
I mean, you know, maybe a silly question to ask, but you know, you've been sort of an advocate and uh, you know, passionate champion of ITM in the space for many years. So, you know, are you surprised in some senses by how quickly it's picked up and are there lessons to be learned from where and why it did pick up the way it has? I'd be interested just to get your thoughts from where we were last time to today. Yeah, uh, thanks, Chris. So um, last time I think was back in uh, 2019. And, um, you, you know, 2019, 20 and 21, there were some very significant things that happened. 2000, October 2019, of course, we uh, did a very important framework deal with Linda. Uh, they invested 38 million in ITM Power. Uh, we formed a joint venture with them called ITM Linda Electrolysis, and we raised 58 million. Uh, the year after that, we did a similar transaction with SNAM, who are one of the world's largest gas infrastructure players. In fact, they're the world's second largest outside of um, Gazprom. And then in October of this year, we raised 250 uh, million. The, the the market itself is the reason we've been able to do that. And the reason we've been able to do it is also the capital markets and the city's understanding of that market traction. And uh, it has been pretty astonishing over the last 18 months, the way 18 months to two years, the way that the macro market has changed. And, and it really has accelerated. You use the word surprised. Am I surprised? Um, do you know, it's hard to be surprised when you've been doing this for, I've been the CEO of ITM now for nearly 13 years. And um, I, I, I never understood why the traction was slow in the early days. And we, we what we've done is we've hit the bottom of an S-curve and we're going up it really rapidly now. And, and, and um, actually, all of the predictions that were made years ago about what hydrogen could do in the market, the penny's now dropped. It's dropped with um, renewable energy companies, with the oil and gas industry, with policymakers and so on. We can have a discussion about how well it's understood in the UK. I think it's less understood in the UK than it is in some other parts of the world. But um, yeah, the market is entirely transformed now. Let me give you a couple of reasons why I think that's the case. So uh, the first thing is uh, the, the British government are really to be commended for being the first government to put net zero by 2050 into law. And that was an important thing to have done. Net zero is different to 80% decarbonisation, which is what we had before. And the reason it's different is that the last 20% and some of the rest, but certainly the last 20% requires you to use green hydrogen and long-term energy storage. And that, so that's the first and very important driver. Second is the reduction in the cost of renewable power. You know, as renewable power comes down, uh, we use more of it. And so the cost of green hydrogen and the need for long-duration energy storage goes up. So that, that's another arrow that um, uh, is, in the, um, is in the right direction. And then finally, the cost of the equipment. So we halved the cost of our electrolyzers over a period of three to four years. So if I go back to when I was first on the show in 2019, that's probably almost exactly coincides with us halving the cost of our electrolyzer equipment. And we seek an additional 40% reduction in the overall cost um, in the next three years. So uh, those three things together have made an incredible difference. Graham, just as a, as a quick follow on to that, because that cost decline profile, while, while very well flagged in, in a lot of the reports that we see and whatnot, you know, one of the questions that comes out consistently is around moving to scale, but also the availability of those kind of critical minerals and, you know, particularly one that crops up is iridium or moving away from kind of platinum into platinum group metals. As a, as a, as a leader in the, the, you know, the PEM electrolyzer space and the electrolyzer space in general, how, how do you think about those longer term kind of challenges as we, as we move towards these kind of gigawatt, gigawatt scale projects in and of themselves? With regard to the supply chain, we've done 20 years of research into PEM electrolysis equipment. That means we've worked on reducing materials in our electrolyzers. 
we've worked on reduce, recycle, reuse. Uh, so not only have we reduced the amount, actually, when it comes to platinum group metals, we're the first company to have met the 2030 EU target for platinum group metal loadings uh, in an electrolyzer. And we met that in 2019. Uh, so uh, we've done a lot of work in the area. In fact, I would say any volatility in that market is a competitive advantage for ITM power. So um, uh, reuse is also very important. You know, we have a unique design of uh, stack, electrolyzer stack, which means that it can be demounted. It not only can you use it for, for very, very rapid response, and by that I mean turning the cell at the cell level, at the stack level, uh, you can turn the stack on and off in a fifth of a second, which is about 10 cycles. Uh, so not only have we perfected the, the, the stack for rapid response, but also uh, it floats on hydraulics, which means it can be demounted and you can reuse components. So uh, we spent a lot of time um, understanding all of that. And then recycling, of course, I, I think is very important for any energy transition technology. I mean, if you're a manufacturer of something that's going to be used in the energy transition particularly, but in fact any product, you need to have a circular economy. Uh, you also need to understand the level of embedded carbon in your product. And so recycling is incredibly important. So we do all those things, uh, reduce, recycle, reuse. So then, then maybe to the strategic kind of question and level, you know, the, you've announced the second uh, gigafactory in the UK. Why the UK? Why, why again? And uh, I, if, you, uh, if you have any of the, the government ministers listening in, what, what would you ask them to maybe improve to help you in, in you know, developing these facilities? Yeah, so, so why the UK, first of all? Look, we're building the second gigafactory, which is one and a half gigawatts in size in the UK, because we are building that facility actually to improve the level of automation to decrease the costs. Now, if you're going to um, increase automation, it is much easier to do that in a new factory and start right from the beginning with a new blueprint and integrate uh, the um, automation into the lines rather than try and modify the manufacturing facility that you've already got. So Bessemer Park, which is one gigawatt per annum, we're going to sweat that asset while we design the new process in Aviation Park, which is one and a half gigawatts in size. It's uh, 265,000 square feet. It's actually at the Advanced Manufacturing Park. And, and so it gives us an opportunity for a complete redesign so that we can uh, improve the auto level of automation, reduce the costs, um, and also build our five megawatt module. So that's the reason we're doing it, and, and we're doing it in the UK, because it's easier to do all those things if you're a mile away uh, than if you're a long way away. Uh, we also raised enough money uh, to build a two and a half gigawatt per annum factory somewhere else in the world. So an international factory, which would take us to five gigawatts per annum of manufacturing capacity by the end of 2024. And uh, we, we are looking to do a deal. We're, you know, we're, we're a British company that can sit around the table with some of the largest energy companies in the world and say, we're going to build a two and a half gigawatt factory. And if the demand is here, this is where we will build it. And not only that, we have enough money to do it because we raised it in the city of London in October 2021. So look, we, we, we don't take the approach of a kind of a British cottage industry type of company. You know, I've seen my own experience where a British companies become capital constrained and then they're always beaten by large American companies who raise enough money to get on with the job properly. And um, the following we have in the capital markets in the city of London has been phenomenal and we are able to act in a different, more international way. I mean, look, Graham, I, I, you've been a very, um, you know, you've been very vocal about the exciting opportunities with ITM. And, you know, uh, clearly you've also made some big investments in the UK. 
to an extent, I, I kind of wonder, you know, are there any particularly preferred markets that you have when you talk about sort of opportunities to go overseas? I mean, from memory, ITM have presence in Germany, in Australia, in the US. So, you know, is that a kind of nudge towards or a nod towards the markets that you think are the most appealing? You know, or are there actually a few markets that perhaps um, maybe traditionally people have overlooked that you're also very excited about, given the skill, the ambitions you're describing? Yeah, I mean, the first probably right answer to that question is that uh, green hydrogen is a global movement and there are lots of areas where that are very appealing for a company like ITM. So uh, to answer directly what you said, first of all, Germany is very interesting. We have the 100 megawatt Rhineland refinery project with Shell in Germany. We have the 24 megawatt Leuna project in Germany. We have a company called ITM Power GmbH in Germany. And it's just been funded by the German government. So we are building in Germany an installed base of electrolysis equipment and an after-sales support organization. And we have a a, a facility for spares holding and we have a facility for us uh, uh, to use as a base for after-sales support and for monitoring. So we monitor all of our electrolysis in the field uh, remotely. So... You mentioned Germany. Germany is very interesting. Europe in general is very interesting for us. You know, SNAM is a partner of ours and they're in Italy with a five gigawatt target uh, by 2030. But uh, it's not only Italy. Of course, Spain have a four gigawatt target, Portugal a two and a half gigawatt target. So as a, um, a territory moving very quickly in the area of green hydrogen, Europe is in the lead. And uh, an overall target in Europe, as you know, of 40 gigawatts by 2030, and to also import 40 uh, gigawatts of, of uh, electrolytic hydrogen. But uh, Europe's not the only place. UK is not the only place. So let me uh, go around the world and tell you some other interesting areas. So the US, uh, the, the Biden bipartisan infrastructure bill allocates nine and a half billion, nine and a half billion dollars. Uh, to green hydrogen. And uh, they have the uh, a project called the Earthshot, which was announced from the DOE to get hydrogen to $1 a kilogram in the next decade. It's a one, one, one strategy, $1, one kilogram, one decade. Uh, now, uh, Linda merged with Praxair and Linda and Praxair are the market leader for supplying hydrogen uh, in the US. So a very interesting area for us. Um, you may have noticed uh, last year that the um, energy minister from Chile visited our factory in the UK um, and they have a target of 25 gigawatts uh, by 2030 um, a, 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 and also a 5 gigawatt target by 2025. So a massive amount of electrolysis equipment. It, it's logical because in Chile you have a huge amount of low-cost, high-load factor renewable power. So that is a very, very good place to make and export hydrogen and ammonia. Another place you have extremely low-cost renewable power is the Middle East. And um, we've seen the record for solar first uh, achieved uh, in the UAE at 1.4 cents per kilowatt hour. That the record then moved to Portugal, 1.1 cents per kilowatt hour, and then it moved back to the Middle East and in Saudi Arabia, 0.95 cents per kilowatt hour. What an astonishingly great place to make green hydrogen. Um, Australia is very interesting as well. The, the, the entry market for green hydrogen around the world is replacing industrial hydrogen. That's grey hydrogen made using natural gas. And, 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 you know, we can have the debate about natural gas, but very simply, the cost has gone up uh, uh, so fast that now green hydrogen has cost parity with any other form of hydrogen. So no longer do people say to us, well, green hydrogen is uh, more expensive than grey hydrogen, because in many parts of the world, actually, it isn't anymore. And Graham, following up on, on sort of, that trajectory and, you know, even talking about the growth in scale and the ambition around the scale of projects around the world and, and that ITM is involved with. Can you talk a little bit about what 
the major challenges. There have been a lot of challenges as ITM has grown. You guys have overcome a huge number of them, but now you're facing huge deployment projects, large scale uh, ambitions. Are there particular challenges that you guys are confronting these days that you, that come with that growth in scale? So yeah, uh, thanks, Andrew. Great question. Uh, what what have the challenges been? I can tell you more accurately probably what the solutions have been, and that's probably more but useful. Both of those work. That's yeah. Wherever you yeah. want to take that, Graham, I'd be interested to hear. Okay. So uh, well, first thing to say is we've developed great partnerships. So we partnered with Shell and Linda, and we've worked with them for more than half a decade. Initially, uh, installing refueling stations on Shell forecourts, and that took us through a compliance journey. Uh, and compliance is fundamentally important. Having done a lot of development work, the, the key challenge is always to turn that development work into a product that people want to buy. Uh, and uh, first thing we did was we got. ISO accreditation from the factory. We got our product CE marked. We developed uh, those two great partnerships. And then we worked really hard to work with those partners so that those partners came with us on the journey. And and partnerships like that uh, have been incredibly important. So that's the first bit. I think it's about product definition. Uh, it's about compliance and CE marking. And it's about having great partnerships. And um, the other part is the money. And, and, and you know, we, we've got capacity and scale now. We had a market listing when I started. So uh, I didn't IPO the company. When I started 13 years ago, 12 and a half years ago, the, the company had a market listing. What this means then is you can raise capital. And actually, I, I really don't believe that any companies can have a significant impact on the energy transition unless they are backing from the capital markets. You have to have the capital markets behind you. Um, and so as the macro market changed and as the understanding in the city of hydrogen changed, and by the way, we worked incredibly hard in the city of London explaining the proposition of green hydrogen and energy storage. But as they got it, and they wrote more and more research notes. We became more and more of interest, which meant that we, we got the backing to scale the company. And I think that was incredibly important as well. No, and I'd agree, Graham. I, I agree. I think this made a huge, huge difference is the fact that you guys are listed. And I think that's been a hugely helpful thing as well, because I think it's given people a means to engage with the story and what you're trying to do. And as you say, to actually mobilize the resources um, I, if you don't mind, though, one of the things I wanted to ask you a little bit about that was, you know, because you are listed and because ITM is well known, in some senses, you and obviously you're very well spoken and you speak often about hydrogen as potential. Uh, you also sometimes act or ITM can sometimes act as a lightning rod for some of the criticisms within the market around what hydrogen can't do, um, not just what hydrogen can do. And I guess what I wanted to sort of ask you a little bit was, it, there clearly has been a change in the last couple of months where there is much more of an open dialogue and there certainly are more vocal people who are critical of what hydrogen can do. Do you think some of that criticism is fair? Um, and do you feel that potentially the industry didn't engage enough with some of that early? Or do you have a different view? It'd be just great to get your perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, criticism actually is... is um always constructive for a company if you address it in the right way. I mean, let, let me just unpack the question a little bit, um, if I might. So also being a lightning rod, um, as you put it, is, um, is a double-edged sword, but it's a compliment in some ways as well. I mean, our, we don't dwell on criticism. We just try and get on and do what we do as well as we possibly can. So I suppose that's the first thing to say. I'm a very optimistic and positive person. I don't engage with all that stuff. We, we just uh, get on and build things and, and uh, implement technology. And I think that's, you know, the most important thing. We, we are focused on the existing market for hydrogen. So, so we're not trying to create a market. You know, industrial hydrogen is a market of 70 million tonnes a year. Um, and, and most of that is refining or ammonia. And you can't replace 
industrial hydrogen used to make in refining or to make ammonia or to make methanol with a battery or any other technology. It is hydrogen being used for hydrogen. So what we're doing is decarbonizing that. We're replacing that gray hydrogen with green hydrogen. Now people, uh, most of the debate is about should you put hydrogen in the gas grid and is that the best way of implementing net zero space heating? Or they argue about what forms of transport should be decarbonized using hydrogen rather than batteries. Should everything be an electric drivetrain or should it be an e-fuel? Those are, are, are the debates. I think that the first job uh, of any green hydrogen company is about decarbonizing the existing market for hydrogen. Others will flow afterwards. And, and you know, I, I believe that decarbonizing the gas grid is important. I believe that it's a very effective infrastructure for transmitting energy. And so consequently, using it for blending to decarbonize it and then ultimately having 100% hydrogen gas grid is a great thing to do because whatever you use the hydrogen for, you're going to have to move it around. Um, I also think that e-fuels are important. So I think uh, sustainable aviation fuel and sustainable marine fuel are very important. And I also think compressed hydrogen for very heavy vehicles that go back to the same place to refuel, like buses, trucks and trains, will also benefit from the use of hydrogen. But the markets are astonishingly large. So even if you're just decarbonizing industrial hydrogen, that's 600 gigawatts of electrolysis, that one market. The IEA tells us that we need three and a half thousand gigawatts of electrolysis by 2050. So in the next 29 years, three and a half thousand gigawatts, that's 35 centuries of the production in, uh, from Bessemer Park. And, and Bessemer Park's the world's largest electrolyzer factory. So uh, we're not short of applications. Um, and, um, you, you know, I, th I think it's good to have the debate and it's good that people are engaged. So, Graham, uh, I think one last question, which, you know, uh, and, and appreciate that you've, you've given us uh, an awful lot of kind of insight, both in terms of the market and, and where ITM is going. But, you know, we're at the start of 2022 now. And as you, as you said, you know, that we're at a, a maturing point for sure in a, in a lot of spaces. What are you most looking forward to in the next couple of years until we get you back again to hear the, the next, uh, the next progress, uh, kind of report and, and where, where ITM has gone in, in kind of, uh, growing it even more as an international company? Yeah. Thanks for the question, Patrick. So look, ITM Power is an extremely ambitious company. Uh, we, we will be a world energy leader. I, I, I have no hesitation in saying that. I, I'm looking forward to a market that develops very rapidly, policy that develops very rapidly. I'm looking forward to uh, building next year another gigafactory and the year after that building one um, internationally. And I, I think ITM Power will be a world-leading British technology company that is global. Short, sweet, and to the point on that last one there, Graham. <laughs> and and just a small goal there. <laughs> just a small goal, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, Graham, you've been very gracious with your time, and it's been fantastic catching up with you and watching the incredible progress that uh, ITM has made over the past two years since we first spoke. And as Patrick said, we are, uh, we are looking forward to getting the next update and seeing what you guys have done uh, in the next couple of years. It's been, uh, it's been a wild ride, and I'm sure you guys feel the same way. Yeah, it has been a wild ride, but it's been a very enjoyable one as well. And we've got some great new people in ITM Power who are making a fantastic contribution as well. So, look, I'm, I'm very grateful for you having me on again. And as you say, let's uh, let's revisit the subject in a couple of years' time, and I'm sure that you'll see some amazing progress. We're we're looking forward to it, Graham. Thanks again for your time. You're very welcome. This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech. Biogas, Biotech's gas as a service option, provides customers with low cost hydrogen on demand. Get dependable access to as much hydrogen as you require when you need it. 
Biotech produces the hydrogen locally and distributes it via high-pressure transport trailers. Avoiding long transportation distances saves money while minimizing emissions. You pay for the fuel by the kilogram, avoiding high infrastructure costs. Biotech makes hydrogen easy. Visit biotech.us today to get low-cost, low-carbon hydrogen delivered on demand. All right, guys, we had Graham back again. And, uh, you know, as usual, incredibly engaging guest, super interesting story to tell. I think we start with Chris Jackson and uh, keep it focused on uh, on ITM and hydrogen. Hopefully, Chris, you know, we can come back to the geopolitics shortly. But uh, what do you think? How how uh, how have things changed since we last talked to Graham? Well, I mean, loads of things have changed. I mean, uh, well, it's maybe two different questions there. Maybe we can unpack. Let's unpack them separately. So. What do you think? What was the what was the big highlight here? Well, yeah, okay, even more questions, right? What well, I think, um, well, look, it's great to have him on the show. Um, it's really exciting. I think something to reflect on that's interesting is how a company like ITM that was sub hundred million AIM listed company three years ago is now the world's biggest PEM um, electrolysis manufacturer, and that lead seems to be only growing. It's, it's interesting just how far ahead they are of a lot of competitors, given that so many people have been in this space for quite a while. So I thought that was very uh, interesting. I think he spoke very eloquently to that. Um, you know, and obviously they've done very well. And I think he made a very interesting point about capital markets and about the value of being able to use capital markets to raise significant amounts of capital. And I have to say, I think ITM raised very well. I think they raised at the right points in the market and, and no doubt that has made a huge difference. And I suspect there are a number of businesses actually in the hydrogen sector that because of the listings and um, being involved have also done well. In the UK, there's quite a few businesses that I think have benefited from that. So I think that was a good and interesting insight and probably one of the examples where unlike the tech world, where people prefer to stay private till the 11th hour, hydrogen businesses actually that were listed probably did better and raised better terms than the ones that were unlisted, which is quite interesting difference just in funding and strategy and in mindset. And I think he spoke really eloquently, eloquently to that. Um, a final one, if I may, and I'd be interested to see if you felt this, uh, it felt like directionally there was a subtle shift. So he spoke a bit less about the role of hydrogen sort of more broadly as a general energy vector. He did touch on that, obviously. But he spoke quite a lot about uh, hydrogen electrolysis simply for decarbonizing existing source of hydrogen. So he spoke a lot about their work with the Shell Refinery. He spoke a lot about their um, about the contract with Yara that they had uh, recently won for decarbonizing the ammonia production there. And it just was a subtle shift, but it's kind of an interesting one. And I wonder whether I put him on the spot about it, whether that kind of is a slight reflection of the fact that there is more of a critique of the role of hydrogen now there's more of a live debate about that topic and so in some ways he was sitting on or shifting towards areas which he knew were a little bit um safer and easier to defend i think very few people are going to say that you shouldn't use green hydrogen for ammonia or these processes so it's not especially controversial uh, maybe i'm over reading into that but i thought that seemed like a, a subtle shift in the way that he talked about the opportunity sets what did you think patrick no that's an interesting one and i think um there's an element here to which, you know, we go from the hypothetical project development and, and electrolyzer deployment to the to the real, right? And, um, you know, thinking of the projects Graham, Graham is kind of participating in, you know, whether we think of that Shell refinery, as you say, or that Linde uh, kind of offtake or the, the Yara engagement as well, right? Real world projects, right? Maybe not in the more, um, how shall we say, uh, you know, kind of further out kind of technology spaces or de- trans- transition spaces, but real projects. So maybe maybe there's a little bit of that in it, right? Uh, I think the other piece on it, and you, you kind of touched on this, Chris, is the next gigafactory in the UK. Well, I think he said one and a half gigawatt uh, capacity to improve the manufacturing process. That's that's an interesting one. And then also looking looking internationally and, and you know, that, that potential shift to kind of be a multi-market kind of OEM is, is certainly an interesting one for anybody who's, who's looking at this space and how it's going to develop, given that we're seeing announcements, you know, across the world and, 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 and certainly, you know, we'll see the differentiated use cases in different places, right? But like quite an interesting development pathway as well. It's going to be interesting to see that that kind of full capacity. I think he said he had 500 megawatts of uh, backlog on on the the current facility. It's going to be interesting to see how how that deployment level kind of builds. And and you know the the question you know around 
are we going to see uh, electrolyzer capacity match pace uh, with the expected kind of kind of targets that we're seeing with a lot of national government announcements, but also some of the, the more ambitious projects uh, that we're seeing that are gigawatt scale all over the world. And then, yeah, like, I think there's quite a bit to kind of unpack around around these kind of future trajectories and how we see some of these companies that have been leaders for quite a while now start to mature and, and kind of stabilize in their uh, in their engagement in the markets rather than being a you know a plucky startup with with a, a single facility what what it means to get to that really advanced proper manufacturing scale and deliver Andrew yeah well so that's an interesting point guys and that was something I kind of wanted to he also Graham also mentioned something that is maybe more cultural or eccentricity or um, idiosyncrasy of, of the different uh, different business approaches and mindsets in uh, the United States versus the UK. But he was talking about being more aggressive uh, about reaching into capital markets and kind of building off of what you were saying, Chris. Do you think that we will see more companies in the hydrogen space, electrolytic hydrogen or, or otherwise, going and reaching out to or reaching into public markets and going public this year, do you think that will Graham has the the right view of this, and that we'll see a trend of more and more of these companies going to public markets, or is that too soon to tell? Or what do you think about that that approach? What do I think? I, I think that there has been a problem for a long time in the energy sector, which is that people are very very comfortable financing assets that are built. People are broadly quite comfortable financing assets where all the offtake is sorted, the technology has been built hundreds of times before, and all of the equipment suppliers and EPC are really well known. And after that, funding basically falls off a cliff on the project side. Um, so on the project side, and for companies trying to build projects, you know, so ITM Motive, or, you know, you know, companies like Everfuel, or, uh, you know, even companies like Proteum or Rise or uh, Intercontinental or any any of these ads hiring a, I think that's sort of a structural feature of the current markets. And uh, I don't know whether a listing would help those kinds of businesses. Clearly in France, a lot of people have gone down that route. That's where HRS went, that's where HDF went, and that's exactly what Everfuel did. So for actual deployment funding and for infrastructure rollout, the public markets may be better than the private markets. I think he probably is right there. I don't know if that's still true on the technology side. I think there's still an abundance of capital in private capital markets that are very keen to back technology plays and put serious money behind them. And I would suggest actually because they're then not susceptible to intraday share price share price fluctuation and having to meet costly earnings, because these are things that might take five, 10 years to become commercial, you would rather they were private anyway. So I, I think that's how I would view it. And then the question for someone like ITM is, are you effectively past that early stage startup, as Patrick says, and you are effectively an equipment manufacturer that has a development arm to what you do. Um, and I actually don't know from a listing proposition how many other businesses that sit in that category, whether that works or not. I mean, typically those things get spun out. If you look at the maturity in the sectors for solar and wind, lots of solar and wind companies had both of those things. And at some point were forced to spin out. Vestas is a good example. But, you know, first solar in the US is also another example. So, you know, you could just say it's a sign of market maturity that they are integrated for now. But in the future, you know, ITM Motive will be spun out. It'll be something separate in the same way that Everfuel was often seen as a spin out from Nell, essentially. You know, so you'll see that most of these equipment manufacturers, it's a sort of it's sort of spun out. Um, I don't know if that helps, but that's how I would probably try and read it. It does. It all, Your input is always helpful, Chris. So. I saw Patrick nodding along to a lot of your a lot of your comments there. So Patrick, I don't know if you want to weigh in on this, but uh, I, I I take it you broadly agree with Chris's analysis here. I think I think there's a really interesting point about the trend that we've seen in similar markets, right? So solar and wind being the obvious ones, as Chris has said, and I think that's not something that um that I think I think certainly I was thinking of initially when thinking about the advancement of the, the manufacturing side of it, but that may be the pathway and and it's certainly one worth um worth spending some time thinking about around you know if the trajectory of the market is going to uh mirror that to some degree of the other uh, clean tech uh kind of evolutions we've seen in the last 20 30 years right certainly there are challenges right and certainly there are regional challenges in funding certainly the the structure of financing is is changing i think 
I think there's there's certainly something here about how we see the actors in the space uh, evolve, right? And and as projects are developed, whether we do get this kind of spin out piece, or whether we do get um, almost a um, uh, kind of alignment between developers who are developing, for instance, renewable energy projects already, and adding uh, almost a, a kind of a strand to their bow, and it goes that way rather than the production side. I think I think we could get both, but but also there's an interesting dynamic here if if we see this trajectory coming into being. Yeah, and there's something else. You know, moving on from the from the funding side of things, guys, and in, in public versus private markets. So there's something else that that Graham mentioned uh, during the interview that is not not a minor issue. Um, but I wonder if you guys have have the same view. He mentioned that in his view. He thinks that electrolytically produced hydrogen in terms of cost per kilogram, let's assume, is coming into, I believe he said, near parity with other production methods, right? So would you guys say that, that has not been my understanding of the of the trend at this time or where we are at this time? But do you think that is accurate? You guys, is that uh, eccentricity of potential incentives and in, in, you know, public funds from the government? In, in the UK that he's referring to? Or how, how do you guys view that that statement? Uh, if I can reflect just a general sensitivity here first, right, before we get into some kind of market dynamics. There, there is a tipping point in electrolyzer use at which the electricity price is the dominant cost, right? And as you see that sensitivity or to move towards that tipping point, if you can get low-cost electricity, you're going to get a lot closer to conventional market pricing for hydrogen today. That's that's just a technology pathway plus the feedstock relative cost kind of uh, determination. If you're grid connected, you're going to pay a lot more for your electricity. If you're off grid right now and you're going to build, you know, as we've seen with these very large projects, if you're going to build those those resources yourself and get the lowest cost power you can get, yeah, you can get you can get probably well down there. But, you know, there's an aspect of scale here, there's an aspect of system design here, and then there's an aspect of what actual electricity price are you getting in the system that is really, really going to be dominant here. I'll defer to Chris on on some of the actual, like, developments in particularly, obviously, the UK today, but but also maybe some projects today. Yeah, I think you have to, geography is important in this context, right? So in the context of Europe and what's happening with natural gas prices today, green hydrogen electrolytic is cheaper in a lot of configurations, especially if used as an industrial feedstock, um, because natural gas prices are ludicrous. But if you're in North America, it's a different game. So uh, you just have to be, I think, slightly cognizant of that. Different geographies just have completely different dynamics in their energy markets at the moment. So there is an element of this is not a pure technology commentary this is just a market structure comment and, and a question of and a question of scale right this question of scale is, is patrick's pointing to it, it is i mean i think um i, I think it's, it's just interesting to sort of sit and reflect on a couple of more macro things if we're going to get into this and, and this is what um you know graham talks about from itm you know if you look at it on a macro scale, you conclude there is a limited amount of biogas out there and where there is biogas that's extremely valuable, you want to be quite strategic in how you use that resource. It's very valuable. Lots of people want it. Ergo, uh, policymakers seem to be struggling with ways to think about using biogas unless there's a net negative story to it. Right. If you can capture or sequester CO2 more effectively by converting it into hydrogen, making it net negative, then, then they're kind of interested. But straight biogas to hydrogen seems to be they're struggling with. So then you're really left in the dichotomy of natural gas into hydrogen versus electrolytic. And that then is very much a function of what is the use case where, what is the market that you're describing and what are the, you know, the economic and um, consumer drivers around that. So a lot of tenders in the UK are explicitly electrolytic. So even if we reformed biogas and sequestered the CO2, we're not eligible for tenders on some projects in the UK. And that's not a government thing. That's just the customers saying that's not what we want. Um, you know, there are other customers that would like that and are really happy for that. But it just depends on on the profile. There are some customers that actually are really happy with hygiene that comes off a chloroalkali site that can be cleaned up and used and are super happy with that. And that could be great because it's from the grid. But actually, some people go, well, it's waste. So we should actually treat it as I don't know, green or at the very least low carbon. So, you know, th- there's just a lot of nuance in all of this. I think you know, Graham is clearly advocating for a, you know, a particular technology suite because that's his business, what he does. Uh, I, I think, though, that it is hard to argue 
that if you look at the longer term trajectory that Patrick's looked at, you don't get to a point where um, the cheapest cost locations on Earth for hydrogen production will be those which use electrolytic. I think that is I have not read a piece of work that has suggested there would be a part of the world where it would be cheaper than any other alternative to use a non-electrolytic technology. I know probably a whole bunch of listeners will come back to me with with comments on that. But generally that I would be fairly confident in saying. Well, at some point, I probably am going to come back with to you with a comment on that front, Chris. But given our limitations on time today, maybe we save it for another another episode and perhaps the same episode in which Patrick uh, takes on the Port of LA MOU. But uh, I think this was a great one, guys. Really good to have Graham back on. Really interesting discussion. Chris, we'll check in with you next time on geopolitics and uh, the state of the nation or state of state of 10 Downing Street, as the case may be. Well, all the parties going on at 10 Downing Street. I assume that's why Boris is lifting the restrictions. Well, I mean, just 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 maybe as it's something we can decide if we want to do. But apparently when um, Boris Johnson's uh, new head of communications came in, the two of them sung to each other, I will survive as they walked in. So what an adorable scene. I, I can, I wish, I wish we could have been there. So maybe we should have like a, a song and actually speaking of songs, and it's a good segue. And it's a little bit of a plug for our friend Graham. ITM did a hydrogen acapella group video. Uh, it's on YouTube of a bunch of guys singing about hydrogen and it's tied to the guys from ITM. Um, I have no idea if you'll ever want to go watch it. You could go watch it. Um, and if you want another plug for a hydro-related video, Ceres Power have a advert in Japan about a Japanese woman singing about how much money her solid oxide fuel cell saves her at home by taking natural gas and reforming it and generating heat and power. So there you go. Plenty of hydrogen songs to, to get our listeners distracted with something completely meaningless. <laughs> And that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge EAH thank you to Graham Cooley, CEO of ITM Power, for joining us again on the show today. And thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.